because there's lots of people to be jealous about. And doesn't the world live in this kind of anger? Their television stirs it up. Their music stirs it up. Why? All these famous people getting all these, all these things that they wish they had, and they live in this constant state of anger, of jealousy, anger because of fear, anger because of anxiety, anger because of foolishness, anger because of selfishness. The world is rife with anger riddled through. It's a time bomb waiting to explode, and it always has been. Why? Because they don't know We, the church, you as an individual believer, must not live like this. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. with Kevin and Jackie Gross. So we're playing the game. And we're getting ready. We're explaining it all, you know, about the colors and all the roots. And Kevin looks at the board and he goes, what, what colors are those? I'm like, no, the colors are obvious. It's red. And, you know, he's colorblind. He says, like, I, don't, I don't know what those are. So I can't really tell. It's going to be hard for me to plan my roots from one end to the other because I can't see the colors. Well, then we realized what the symbols were for. The little symbols were if people were colorblind that you could look at the symbol and know what color it actually was. Now, again, it, it would be no big deal that Kevin was colorblind, well, maybe in his dressing for Sunday morning or something like that, unless, of course, he wanted to win the game. If he didn't want to win the game, then it's fine, and thankfully for the symbols. But maybe it ups the ante a bit if the president of the United States is colorblind, and he's got two buttons on his desk. He's got the blue button for when things are not so serious. He's got the big red button for when things are serious. And if he's colorblind and he hits the wrong button, then the earth goes up in smoke. Why am I sharing this with you? Well, we have a difficult time discerning our righteous anger from our unrighteous anger. And too often we press the wrong button. We're colorblind, as it were, to our anger. Instead of a righteous anger, which should come out properly, we hit the big red button and it causes an incendiary results in our lives and the lives of others. We must become better at learning what is truly righteous and what is simply our sinful desires, or even when our righteous anger turns over into sinful anger so that it is harming to people. We have to learn to put in the blood and sweat and tears necessary to grow in our godly discernment towards an exercise of a true biblical anger. And this does take work. Everything in the Christian life takes work. Yes, it is the power of God. Yes, he strengthens us to do so. And yet it is effort that is necessary for us to grow in our godliness. So what we'll see this morning is that God is completely righteous in his anger against sin. And we are to emulate him in godly indignation while putting off the sinful anger that is an expression of our lustfulness and pride. Again, God is completely righteous in his anger against sin. And we are to emulate him in godly indignation while putting off the sinful anger that is an expression of our lustfulness and pride. And remember where all of this began in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus begins to discuss the nature of the commandments, even the Ten Commandments, and go underneath them to say, this is what they really mean. It's not just a physical act of murder. That's sin. That causes you to be guilty. But remember, it's the heart of murder. It's a heart of anger. And there he's talking about unrighteous anger. 
Certainly, an unrighteous anger is what drives our murderous tendencies, whether it never gets out of our heart and mind, or whether it comes out in our words, or whether it ultimately comes out in our actions and, and we slay someone. Jesus said you're equally guilty before the highest court that is God. The sins are not exactly the same of actually committing a murder and thinking of anger in your heart, but the consequence is ultimately the same before God. His wrath poured out upon one whose heart is consumed with anger. So we talked about the unrighteous anger, that's the heart of murder. But then last week we talked about righteous anger, that's the heart of God. Of the, of the 300 times that the word anger is used, over 300 times that it's used in the Bible, the vast majority are used of God himself. And remember, his anger is always righteous. When the Bible says God is slow to anger, it doesn't mean, well, sometimes he gets unrighteously angry. He's never unrighteously angry. It means that he always exercises his righteous anger properly. And, and we also need to remember that God is always angry at sin. He never looks at sin and goes, well, that's okay. Well, I'm not mad about that sin. I don't have a righteous anger towards your sin. I only have a righteous anger towards someone else's. He is an equal opportunity anger offender, as in he always is angry against sin. But remember, it is not the vindictive, foolish, sinful anger that we have. It is the strong, righteous, just anger against sin because he is holy and he is perfect and he must have it. So we talked about the fact that God's anger is strong. It's not something to be minimized in his character. It's not something to be looked over or, or, or maybe somewhat covered up. No, God is truly angry and rightfully so. I mean, this very season where, where we are to be celebrating what peace and joy. Well, there's only peace and joy for those who are underneath the sacrifice of Christ. Otherwise, there is anger and wrath. Scripture is clear about this. The wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1. So we must understand that God's anger is strong. And our righteous anger, that is, as we emulate him in this, it is to be a part of our nature that is truly angry against sin because we hate the same things that God hates. We are not a passive group of people that says, well, sin is okay, everything is fine, let's just love everybody. We love everyone in one facet by being angry against sin because it is their sin that is dishonoring God and destroying them. So God's anger is strong. And then we talked about the things that God is angry with, which are the things that we are to emulate. God is angry with disobedience. We hate it when others are disobedient to God, just as he hates it because he is worthy of obedience. God is angry with false worship. He's angry with irreverence where people do not honor him. They use his name in vain. They slander him. God is angry with those who harm his people, as we should be as well. God is angry with those who do not exalt his son, the very sacrifice of his son given for us, that the beginnings of which we celebrate in this season, people trample it underfoot by refusing to bend the knee to, to the son in repentance and faith. But also we said that God is slow to anger, that he always exercises his anger in the right measure at the right time, and that he's patient. Even though he's angry against every sin, he is always patient in how he meets out that anger upon his people and even upon unbelievers. He's patient with them. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you're still living, you're still drawing breath. And God's wrath is upon you in the sense that he hates your sin, but he's keeping you alive. He's allowing you to live until such time as you might believe in him. He is slow to anger. His anger towards his people, towards believers, remember, also is temporary. That's how we describe his, his temporal, really his, his relational anger. He hates your sin, even though your sins have ultimately been forgiven in Christ and he's poured out his wrath upon Christ. He still hates your sin and he brings his discipline for it. But it's only for a moment, as it were because we will one day spend eternity with him with no wrath, no anger, all of it taken because there will be no sin. And we will be with him for all of eternity. So his anger towards his people is temporary. It's for a moment. And then God's anger is appeased by humility and repentance. 
as we humble ourselves before him, that's in, in, in Christ, recognizing what Christ has done, then his anger is, is absolved, it is appeased. And these are the things that we are to remember about God's anger. And then we said, the, the way that we respond to this, we must obey God's word as we express a righteous anger. It is difficult for us to do this. We are so sinful. Our motives are bound up with sinful things. And yet we are to strive to hate the things that God hates and to only hate those things. We're not to hate just the things that make us mad or that cause us um, some kind of grievance. We're to only hate the things that God hates. Remember Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. We are to have an anger against the things that dishonor God. And then also, though, if we're going to have a godly anger, a righteous anger, we have to learn to develop discretion. That is using scriptural principles to understand whether or not our anger is correct or simply according to our own desires. And as we develop that discretion, then we said we had to develop self-control, the proper exercise even of a righteous anger. So that it does not explode on someone inappropriately or our anger towards the sin of society does not lead to, to, uh, to offenses against society in ways that are not biblical. And that was the last piece. Remember, look at the Apostle Paul who was in the city of Athens and he had indignation rising up in his heart. He was provoked within. Why? Because of the idols there. And he went forth and did what? Railed against society, screamed at them to change. No, he went and he preached Christ and him crucified. And I pray that that will always be our ultimate response. Well, that's the exercise of godly anger. There's much more to be said, but it's not the time to do so. Now we need to switch towards how we actually deal with our sinful anger. And I want to get very specific here because this is a tremendous problem in church. I'm not speaking specifically of our church. I'm speaking of every church. Every human being wrestles with anger and anger is intensely destructive. Low level, what we call we might call low level anger, what we just call frustration, which is really sinful anger directed at others because they aren't meeting our needs to the explosive, harmful, abusive anger, all and everything in between. They rip churches that rips churches apart, rips families apart. And ultimately is, is, is a, a trampling underfoot the sacrifice of Christ as the world looks and sees us as angry as they are. So now in Ephesians 4, the first part we've really already covered, 426, be angry and do not sin. That's sinful or that's righteous anger. We're supposed to be righteously angry and in that we are not to sin. But if we are not going to sin in our anger, how do we recognize it? So that's onto your outline. How will you recognize whether your anger is sinful or righteous? Well, we talked about God's and what it looks like. We're to emulate that. And now we need to look underneath a little bit at our own natures to see where we go wrong in our anger. One, sinful anger always is related to unmet lusts or desires that have become idolatrous. To explain that, go to James 4. Now, this is a bit of review. We did this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but I want to remind you. So turn to James 4 so you'll see it here. Our unmet desires that we then treat as more important than God are the things that cause our anger. So in James chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures which wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, when we are displeased about the fact that our desires have not been met and we respond sinfully in these quarrels and conflicts, that's a result of anger in our hearts because we didn't get what we wanted. 
We sin when we respond in unrighteous anger due to unmet desires. Remember that an idol may be something that started out good. You might desire to have a good relationship with someone in the church. They refuse to respond to you, and so you get angry. You might desire to have a good relationship with your spouse, and she is not treating you well, and so you get angry. Well, the desire itself wasn't wrong, but when you exercise sinful anger to deal with it, you demonstrated your desire to be idolatrous. Because an idol is anything we will sin to get, sin to keep, or sin because we do not have. It could be a good thing. And but if we, if we sin to get it, then we are, we are simply demonstrating it to be more important than God. And this drives our anger. Consider this. There is no one who can ultimately meet every need you have. In fact, it, it's impossible. And if your needs are directed wrongly or exercised improperly, then you begin to cause tremendous harm in the body of Christ. These quarrels and conflicts where they were lusting and didn't have, so they committed murder. Probably anger could have been led to actual committing of murder, but most likely constant anger at other members of the body of Christ because this was written to believers. You're envious and can't obtain. You fight and quarrel. And then it says, here's the whole thing. You're not getting your real needs met because you're not asking for the things you actually need. Or when you do ask for the things you actually need, you're asking with wrong motives so that you don't get them. And so your anger, your unmet desires, you're not going to the right place to deal with the things that you need, which is to God, to, to ask provision and, and accept provision from him. He really sums all this up with a really strong verse in verse 4. I think all this is tied. It's not a, it's not a new section. In verse 4, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility, anger towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What's he saying? Your anger towards one another is really an hostility against God. You want the things that the world wants. You are lusting for them, or again, you are lusting for even right things in a worldly way. And so you are essentially making yourself an enemy of God. Anger is spiritual adultery because we are seeking from someone else our satisfaction or something else, not getting it and then being angry, then, then sinning in our anger. So unmet lusts, unmet idolatrous lusts lead to anger. And really tied directly to it is a selfishness. That's what's driving this. It says in, in our text here that you want these things, not so that you can please and honor God, but so that you can spend them on your pleasures. Your lusts are so that you can be pleased. And as you do that, you end up being angry at others when they don't please you. You see, if we consider our needs before the needs of others, we will be very angry people. For no one, and, and really no group of people, will be able to meet enough of our needs to make us happy. Our needs, ungoverned and unbounded by the word of God and provision of God, are an endless black hole that knows no true satisfaction. If you come first, you will always be angry because no one can give you enough pleasure. No one. Your spouses can't do it. This whole church isn't enough for you if your desires are expressed in an ungodly way. So unmet lusts and selfishness are, are really a, 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 an exhibition of an idolatry which leads us to anger. And anger it, almost continually because there's, there's almost never any time when our needs aren't being met at some level. We always want something else. Well, also tied to this, and remember, these aren't, can't really pull all these apart. We're just trying to look at our unrighteous anger from a bunch of different angles. Pride is, is what drives this. You see, when God or others do not seem to value who we are or what we have done to the level that we think we deserve, we get angry. David Powelson says this, you, your wrong reaction, that is an angry reaction, reveals that you are living as if you are in charge of the world. 
You believe that you have the right to judge the people around you and to judge the way that God is running his world. God, this person in front of me is going really slow. I'm angry about that. So you express your anger towards that. My spouse is not responding to me. I'm angry about that. You should have changed that. This circumstance in my life was really difficult. My parents harmed me and abused me. I'm angry about that. God, you should have done something differently. And so our anger is really, we are judging God. Our pride causes us to step into the place of God and say, God, you should have done something differently. And I'm mad. I'm angry about that. Because when we learn to to humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God, not only does that cause us to all the Christian graces that arise, one of the primary ones is a lack of anger. We refuse to be angry because we're not putting ourselves in his place. You're going to be a really angry person if you try to control this world because everything is outside of your control. There's nothing you actually control. Nothing. You don't even control the very own breath that you are breathing right now. God controls it. So you're going to be a very frustrated, sinfully angry person if you try to step into God's place. Your pride will always drive you to anger. And we we looked at, we already mentioned multiple illustrations of this, so I won't go over them in detail, but remember Cain, who came to offer a sacrifice to God, a religious service. They said, look what I'm doing for you, God. And God was not pleased with his sacrifice, and Cain became what? became angry because God was not honoring him for what he had done. Oh, is this not a source of much of our anger? God, look what I'm doing for you. Look how much I've done. Look how I'm pouring into my family. I come to church every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night, and you're not doing for me what I want. I'm mad. Why aren't you honoring my sacrifice? You see it. This is everyone. This is every one of us that wrestle with anger in this way. Not just Cain. The other example we use were Joseph's brothers. Who was honored above them? Joseph. He got the coat. He got all the special stuff. And so although his dad made it really easy for them to sin, they chose because they weren't being honored the way they wanted. And someone was above them. They chose to be angry. Now, Cain's anger ended up in murder. Joseph's brother's anger ended up almost in murder. Selling him into slavery, that's much better, right? How about Haman? Remember we talked about him? It's anger that Mordecai, simply as it were, that Mordecai would not bow down to him. Talk about the human heart exposed in the person of Haman. There's, this, there's one guy, everyone else bows down to Haman, essentially. Every, he's, he's in charge of everything. And there's one guy who won't bow down at the temple gate. He goes, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your family, and I'm going to kill your entire race. Because that's the human heart unbared. That's what we're really like underneath. If we could get away with that kind of thing in our unbridled anger, we would do it. Apart from God, this is who we would be. Haman just is a picture of who we actually are. And of course, he's a picture of who Satan is who desires to kill and murder everyone in the world, that he might take them to hell. Not that he will rule them there, he will suffer with them, but he desires to steal, if, if it were he could do this, to steal glory from God by murdering and killing everyone that he can. He will ultimately do this. Now, a way that sometimes we don't consider pride, because it's easy for us sometimes to sit here and go, well, I'm not Cain, and I'm not Joseph's brothers, and I'm certainly not Haman, and I'm not Satan. Well, the Bible unmasks for us what it really means to be angry against God because it has to do with a response to his word. Turn to James chapter 1. You're you're in James 4, um, perhaps, if you're still there. Turn to James 1, and this is unmasked for us. Because you might be saying, well, I'm not angry at God. Well, anytime you don't respond rightly to his word, when you are, when you, when you grow, as we call it frustrated or upset because you have to do a certain thing that the Bible says, that's, that's driven by our arrogance. And that is a, a problem that believers have. In James 1 verse 18, James says this, In the exercise of his will, he that is God, brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Verse 19, 
This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Do you understand that that's a secondary application of that, is that we should listen carefully to people and not get angry at them. That's a secondary application. The primary meaning of that text is that we are to hear God's word, we're to respond to God's word, and we are not to grow angry against him for what he tells us to do. Everywhere the context is hearing the word of God directed towards us. Look at the next verse. It says that we are in, to putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Not angry against the word, not speaking back against it. God, why, why do I have to do this? Why is it necessary for me to obey my parents? They don't understand. Why do I have to respond to this this difficult circumstance in my life with joy? You don't understand. This is hard. And so we begin to speak back against God. And what does he say? The anger of man, your so-called frustration at God, that he isn't doing what you want or commanding you to do things that you find difficult, never achieves the righteousness of God. Listening to his word, humbling yourself underneath his mighty hand and doing what he says, that's how you get righteous, not getting mad at God because he's not giving you what you want or getting mad at others in in an unrighteous way. So perhaps that's the pride that causes an arrogance towards God's word, which ultimately is an anger. Why do I have to do this? My spouse has harmed me deeply. God, why are you making me stay in this marriage? I don't want to do that. It can go from there, from the great to the small. Well, foolishness is another thing that drives our anger when we are fools. Now, hear me carefully. Foolish doesn't mean that you have a low IQ. Foolishness in the Bible is when we don't understand the principles of God's word or when we act as though God does not exist, that he is not in sovereign control of all things. And when we act this way, we get angry. When we misunderstand who God is and don't understand his commands, we easily grow angry because we, we, don't, we don't have a picture for who he is and what he's done. Or when we, we somehow live as though he's not in control, trying to control it ourselves, as we talked about, this is the ultimate in foolishness and it makes us angry. You see, when we tell lies to ourselves about a situation, we get angry. The lie is this, either that God should have changed it, or that it isn't right, or that it's too hard. Those are lies we tell ourselves, or that someone else is at fault, or that we have the right to get angry, or we have the right to respond, because you're lying to yourself. A fool lies to himself because he doesn't have a proper understanding or refuses to properly apply the word of God. That's a fool. And although believers are never fools in the fundamental sense, that is, they don't know God at all, which is what all unbelievers is true for them. Yet we can act foolish in many situations when we are not understanding or applying the word of God. I'm not just making this up. Foolishness and anger are tied together uh, everywhere in scripture. A couple of verses here, Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Don't be anxious for this kind of anger. Don't, don't, Don't be one who is easily angered because it is fools who are easily angered. Proverbs 29, 9. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. The foolish man is not acknowledging God. He's not responding to biblical principles, so he either gets angry or he laughs it off foolishly. Proverbs twelve sixteen: a fool's anger is known at once. It flashes out because he doesn't control it. He doesn't know how, or he chooses to recognize or to not to recognize God's oversight in a situation. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. I think that means that when there's sin, he is working hard to work with it and not flash out in anger against it. Proverbs 14, 29. 
hear this carefully. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. See, that's even slow to the exercise of righteous anger, knowing when and how to do it, but certainly slow in, in the sense of never to unrighteous anger. He always carefully controls himself. Why? It says he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He shows that he is a fool. As this challenges me because there are certain areas in my life where I'm quick to anger. A lot of those have to do with my, with my kids, amazingly enough. And so there's certain things that they do and they do over time and they, they do consistently. And I grow increasingly quick to anger because I am what I call frustrated, sinfully angry that they aren't changing according to my specifications as quickly as I want. And what I do when I get angry like that is demonstrate myself to be a fool. I'm not living as though God is in charge. I'm living as though somehow God has made a mistake because my children are the way they are. Guys, God hasn't made any mistakes. He's known intentionally and directly why he gave me those children. It is only in my foolishness that I would be angry at a holy God. Now, number five, fear and anxiety are closely tied to anger. Fear and anxiety. You see, when we do not trust God's character and provision for us, we become afraid. And we become afraid that we will not get what we want or even what we need. And that fear drives us to what? To anger God. Why aren't you providing? There's such a fine line between being afraid of something that might happen and then be angry at God that, that it might happen. Or if it does happen. Or when we don't receive the provision even that we might sometimes need. And so in our anxiety, in our refusal to trust God, ultimately we grow angry that he hasn't provided. There are very few anxious people who are not also angry people. In fact, I would say there are none. Anxious people are angry people. Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalm 37, 8, I think puts a tie here. It says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. And in case you need an example, I'll just provide you two. Mom, you're at home. You wake up in the morning. You recognize the thousand things that you have to do You've got all this, uh, all this agenda that you have for the day, all the things that, that have to get accomplished. You're fretting about this, anxious about how it will happen. Will it work out? Can I get it all done? And your daughter walks into the room and, has, and comes in and says, Mommy, I just spilled, the, you know, I spilled water all over the table and all over the floor. My cereal's all over. What happens? <laughs> Volcanic anger heads that way. Or maybe even a light anger. When your voice gets tight, you know how that is. Honey, go clean it up. Oh, you didn't explode at them. Wonderful. You were what? You were angry because you're fretting about all these other things. You're anxious about You haven't gone to the Lord. You haven't quickly sought his peace and his strength as you thought through your difficulties. And so that anxiety turned to anger when you were confronted with difficulty. That's how it works. Fear and anxiety lead to anger unless they're biblically stopped always. So fear and anxiety. Also jealousy. Oh, jealousy. When we are desperately desirous of what someone else has, either a thing or a person or an opportunity, hear, hear the word of the Lord, Proverbs 27, 4, wrath is fierce, anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? As it boils in our heart about someone else that got something that we were sure that we deserved, that we should have had, be it a relationship, be it, be it some physical thing, be it some opportunity, it doesn't matter, some opportunity. Again, David Powelson says of this kind of anger, this anger is merciless. It sees, it punishes, and it gets rid of all offenders. That's the idea. You're in my way. You took my stuff. You have what I deserve. I'll try to get you out of the way as soon as I can. The prodigal son's brother is a good example of this. Have you thought much about him lately? 
We talk a lot about the prodigal son, right? He goes away, he, he, he squanders his father's resources, he repents, he comes back, the father welcomes him, has a party, and who's outside refusing to come in? The brother, the other son. And Luke 15, 28 says, but he, that is this brother, became angry. He was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Why was he angry? Because his brother got what he wanted. Why does he get a fatty calf? I've, I've served you. I've done what you wanted. Why? I don't get that. And you don't deserve it. So there's two things going on there, a jealousy. And that's really, that's almost always where jealousy goes, doesn't it? You're not just angry that somebody got something. You're angry because you thought you deserved it more or that they didn't deserve it. Always a combination of both of those things. They didn't actually deserve that. Otherwise, if they really deserved it and you thought that was true, you'd be like, that's great. I love that you had that opportunity because, man, you deserved it. And sometimes we feel that way, but too often we feel the other. And so we're angry because there's lots of people to be jealous about. And doesn't the world live in this kind of anger? Their television stirs it up. Their music stirs it up. Why? All these famous people getting all these, all these things that they wish they had, and they live in this constant state of anger, of jealousy, anger because of fear, anger because of anxiety, anger because of foolishness, anger because of selfishness. The world is rife with anger, riddled through. It's a time bomb waiting to explode, and it always has been. Why? Because they don't know God. We, the church, you as an individual believer, must not live like this. We must be different from the world. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.